<laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's going to be fun. We're good to go? Okay, good morning everybody. Thank you for joining us. For those joining us online and for those here today, welcome. This is going to be exciting. Continue our historical theology study through Alistair McGrath's Historical Theology, the second edition, for those who'd like to follow along. Also, my, my apologies for not getting the notes out. I actually did all my preparatory work. I usually do it on Saturday, so it's kind of like a mechanical thing. I remember that at the end of my notes, make sure I put them out there uh, to get disseminated through the email and stuff. And I told holy space this morning when I was printing them out, but I didn't do that. And so I apologize for anyone, anyone who does not have notes. I actually put them in the back. Uh, printed out five copies of the notes. They're two pages. So if anybody would like the notes for today's study, uh, they're there. They're all, I also put them out to the, the dudes on Telegram. You can have those uh, electronically. But uh, there are some notes in the back. Um, so for those who'd like them. So as we dive into our study, we're going to be doing case study 3.3, the nature of the real presence and the debates between Luther, Zwingli, and the Council of Trent. And then I would also like to add um, Calvin's understanding. Calvin was in between Luther and Zwingli. And so we'll talk about the three of those uh, this morning, or the four of them this morning. Let's open up with the Word. So in Luke 22, Jesus institutes His Supper. And it says in verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this uh, Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So with that, let's pray, and then we'll enter in our time of study together. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, I pray that we would come to a <clears throat> excuse me, greater understanding this morning of Your Word. A greater understanding of this very important debate. To better understand what Your Supper is. The institution of it. What it means. What are the elements and why are they so important? Why was it something that You instituted? Why should we be concerned about it? of the two great institutions, baptism and the Lord's Supper, your body has been commanded to observe it until you return. And so today I pray that as we work through this study together and converse about it, that we would come to a greater understanding of exactly what it means uh, in so much so that we can honor you in our observation of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to be a little bit all over the place today. Um, but there's a few things that we want to take into consideration with this debate. So basically what this was is a response, a Protestant response to the Roman Catholics, specifically regarding transubstantiation. And so the questions that we need to answer today, at least work to try to come to a better understanding of today, is how should we understand 
The sacraments or ordinances. What are those, firstly? Um, secondly, asking ourselves the hard question, does something happen to the elements themselves? So when I say elements, I'm speaking of the bread and wine. Is something happening to them? And so what we want to look at is why were the, the Protestants, particularly if you know Luther's story, Luther really struggled with it. When Luther was first ordained, he actually held a mass and in the service freaked out and spilled the, spilled the wine because he really truly believed that it had and somehow turned into the blood of Christ. He, was, he got really upset about it. He couldn't handle it. It really bothered him. And uh, the Roman Catholic view, as we'll, we'll see here, believes that there is actually an, a real change. Something occurs in the elements, and we'll see, uh, have a better understanding of why. So, defined by the Fourth Lateran Council here in our notes as of 1215, and it rests upon the Aristotelian foundations, specifically on Aristotle's distinction between substance and accident. So the substance really is something essential in nature. It's the essential reality. Whereas its accidents are its outward appearances. So for example, it's color, shape, smell, and so forth. What is that sound? It sounds like someone's on the roof. You hear that? They're doing roof work? I'm like, what is that sound, bro? I'm tripping right now. Um, yeah, so we have to understand, they, they looked at this from an Aristotelian understanding that there was a change in substance, although the accidents, the outward appearance, remain the same. Okay? So the theory of transubstantiation affirms that the accidents of the bread and wine remain unchanged at the moment of consecration. And while their substance changes from that of bread and wine to that of the body of Christ. So the Aristotelian understanding of this, this perspective that the bread still appeared to be the case, the wine still appeared to be the wine, yet the substance, the essential nature of the substance actually became the body and the blood of Christ. Uh, so contrary to the Council of Trent, Martin Luther argued in favor of the consubstantiation perspective. The special presence of Christ was not in the elements themselves. And more radically, Holdrick Zwingli adopted a purely symbolic and memorialist approach where there was nothing special about the elements. They were a mere remembrance of it. So ruled in its 13th session, the Council of Trent argued that there was a real change in the substance of the bread and wine, not just the accidents, resulting from their consecration, a sacred component of the service or mass. And we can look at the notes here in the, <clears throat> in the final paragraph here. It says, During the course of this 13th session, which ended in October 11, 1551, the Council of Trent set out a definitive statement on its understanding of the nature of the real presence of the Christ in the Eucharist, affirming that the term transubstantiation was appropriate to refer to the change in the substance of the bread and wine resulting from their consecration. The decree opens with vigorous affirmation of the real substantial presence of Christ. And quoting them here in the Trent, Council Trent, after the consecration of the bread and wine, our Lord Jesus Christ is truly, really, substantially contained in the venerable sacrament of the Holy Eucharist under the appearance of those physical things. The Council thus vigorously defended both the doctrine and the terminology of transubstantiation. And here's the exact quote from the Council of Trent. Because Christ our Redeemer declared that it was truly 
his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the belief of the church of God with this sacred council reaffirms that by the consecration of the bread and wine, a change takes place in which the entire substance of the bread becomes the substance of the body of our Lord, and the whole substance of wine becomes the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and correctly called transubstantiation. So you can understand how this might have been a problem for some. Interesting enough, in my ongoing saga of debating theology on, in my Facebook friends, with my Facebook friends, there's debating theology groups. Uh, the one that, that has, um, it, it's open to anybody. There's a lot of Roman Catholics that debate, and they basically say this exact thing. And, and they charge us with this very first sentence here. It has always been the belief of the church of God. Always been the belief. And that he declared, our Redeemer himself declared, that it was truly his body. If you read in the scriptures, it says, this is my body, which I give to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Right? So take it, this is my body. And they, they argue saying, well look, it, it, the Lord says right here, it's my body. And my response, and most others' response, especially Protestants, say, nope, that's very much bread. Which is a reflection. It symbolizes something. No, no, no. He said it is. Okay, uh, English, understand that, get it. However, he's saying do this in remembrance of me. Was the Passover the Passover lamb from the Passover? No, and they were eating a Passover meal, weren't they? So we're not eating the actual lamb itself. The lamb was symbolic from the original Passover. We're not eating the same Passover lamb. It was symbolic. It represented something greater than the object itself. Does that make sense? The Passover lamb represented God's provision of atonement for Israel. Um, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. He is, they were eating a Passover meal here. So there's more symbology that's just, than just this mere meal where he takes a cup of wine and he takes some bread and hands it to everybody and says, this represents me. There's more than that. He's, Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. There's more symbology going on here than just the bread and the wine. They're eating a Passover meal and he's saying, this is a direct reflection of what I'm about to accomplish on your behalf. And he correlates it with the kingdom of God in the Gospel of Luke. So there's more going on to it. And so it's when Jesus is saying this is, he's not saying it in a physical sense. He's saying it in a symbolic sense. And this is what Luther really struggled with. So Luther, still wanting to maintain more than a memorial view of Zwingli. So Zwingli was like, well, no, 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 this is nothing but a symbol. Luther said, no, there's something more to it. There's something more to it. So Luther insisted upon a simultaneous presence going on in our notes here, of both the bread and the body of Christ, one at the same time. So it was the word con, right, with, consubstantially. It was with the substance of the elements. So it wasn't in it. it. It's not the actual substance itself, but it was with it. There was some special presence there that goes beyond just mere symbol. So there's no change in the substance itself. The substance of both bread and the body of Christ are present together. So to Luther, the doctrine of transubstantiation was an absurdity, 
an attempt to rationalize a mystery that couldn't quite be explained. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, no, there's something more going on here. It's not just mere symbols, Wingley. There's, there's something more to it. There's a, there's a consecration, a set-apartness to it. For instance, um, this is really great too. If you'd like to open this up to discussion now, um, if you notice there's not a ton of notes, I did want to provide some time here to discuss. If you're interested in better understanding why we hold such a firm view uh, on the Lord's table, it's because of this debate. So many people are unfamiliar with this debate. They don't. They, what do you, what, what's the matter with you guys? Why do you tell visitors not to partake of the Lord's table until you've heard their testimony? That's weird. You know, that's not for you to do. You're not Roman Catholics, right? Or, or Roman Catholics, bro. Most of them are just open it up to anybody, and they only give you the bread, by the way. The priests are the one take the wine. So why? What, what's the matter with you guys? How come you bar the table? It should be open to any believer. We go, Amen. Any believer. And because we're offering it, those who are baptized and made a public profession of faith, amen. It should be open to everybody. But there's something more than the Zwinglian position. This is what we hold. I'm going to go through that in a minute. But part of the debates, why, let me open it up, up to you guys. Why would Luther and us, uh, distinguishing ourselves from the Roman Catholic position, more in alignment with the Lutheran position, but not necessarily Lutheran, and I'll get to why. Why would we hold to this barring of the table? Why is this debate centric to our position in the Lord, uh, for the Lord's table? Anyone besides Greg, who has been a part of this debate, and Brian, you're not allowed to be a part of this debate either, or question, discussion. Why would it be important? Anyone? Thoughts? Okay, yeah, let me rephrase it. So why is this debate and understanding we're not transubstantiationalists, and I'll show from the confession why that's not the case, okay? We don't believe that the actual substance itself um, is the blood and body of Christ. We don't believe that the, uh, the accidents, or just even though it appears to be bread and wine, it is not the substance of the body and the blood of Christ, okay? So we're more in alignment with Luther there's something more to it than what Zwingli held. It's not only a symbol. It's not just a reflection, something that we look back on and appreciate. There's something more to it. So this idea that... Um, let, me, let me read on and maybe this will help. Luther emphasized a real presence, not some theory as to how so. He deployed an image borrowed from origin to make this final point. If iron is placed in a fire and heated, it glows. And in that glowing iron... Both the iron and heat are present. Why not use some simple everyday analogy such as this to illustrate the mystery of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist instead of rationalizing it using some scholastic subtlety? Um, so he says here, let me read on. For my part, I cannot fathom how the bread is the body of Christ, yet I, still, I will take my reason captive to the obedience of Christ and clinging simply to his words, firmly believe not only that the body of Christ is the bread, but that the bread is the body of Christ. My warrant for this is the words which say, He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take it and eat. This is the bread which he had taken and broken is my body. So why, why did Luther struggle with it? He, saw, he thought, yes, it's not the actual body, but there's something more to it. There's some more spiritual significance happening here. Christ, There's some presence of Christ. 
with his people in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, right? And so Zwingli said, no, Christ isn't present in the Lord's Supper. It was just something he gave to us to remember him by. It was a symbol, and it was a mere symbol. There's nothing more to it than that. We don't hold to that Zwinglian view. Mere symbol. We hold, there's more to it, and that's why we actually observe it every week. And, and we believe that much more with Luther than we would with Zwingli. But we're not Lutheran and we're not Zwinglian. <laughs> why do you think, based on your wrestling with this idea and concept of the Lord's table and what we present every week and tell people, hey, if you're visiting us and we haven't had a chance to meet with you since we offer the bread and the wine and the Lord's table every week, we'd ask that you bypass communion with us so that we can hear your testimony and, and get to know you. Why would we do that? Is that better? Okay. Uh, maybe something to the effect of it is there's something more sacred about it since it is not just symbolism. It's symbolism. All who come, they participate in the symbol. Maybe they're just they're an unbeliever participating in that, but there's nothing more sacred about it than that. Whereas if it is actually something more than a symbol, it is Christ's presence is here in it. It is something that the church, the actual body of church is partaking in, and there is something more meaningful, more sacred that the church should be protective about. Yes. Something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, if it didn't mean something more, then you wouldn't have had the second section of that verse in 1 Corinthians mm -hmm. saying, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Well, there's definitely more to it than just mere memorial then, right? How could you drink judgment on yourself unworthily? I think it'd be like, if, if you can't say that you are actually saved and you've been saved, you're trying to partake of something that's sacred. You're basically like a, a pig rolling in the mud. What and makes, then trying to go and partake of all the pretty things. Yeah, you want to be a part of this thing? Uh, for instance, our kids. It's a good example. Our kids, right? I think Barrett wanted to share something. Think about our kids. Any, okay. Anybody had to deal with this response with your kiddos? Hey, how come I can't go up there and eat the bread and drink the wine? Anybody experience that? We have, obviously, all the time. My two younger ones are, we don't know if they're in the faith. We preach the gospel to them all the time, but, but they haven't professed Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're not baptized. And so it's a gospel opportunity, isn't it? So there's more to it. There's more to it. And I think, I think the easiest way to explain that to someone that might hold the memorial position is exactly what you exactly what you shared it was there's a judgment that exists in drinking it un, or you know partaking of it unworthily you you drink and eat judgment upon yourself what does that mean so we have to wrestle with that many people are sick and dying among you because you're doing it this way that i mean that's so there's warnings that exist as it comes to approaching the table. So there must be more to it than just mere memorial. There's a self-examination that needs to occur prior to partaking the Lord's table so that you don't drink judgment upon yourself. Yes. Microphone? Yeah, we're on. Okay. Yeah, here we go. 
It's interesting as far as the mere memorial position, you know, if, if that's the case, it wouldn't matter, you know, whether somebody's a Christian or not, you know, yeah. pagan, whatever, come one, come all, you know, and take. It's funny. Um, I'll just share real quick as far as, you know, some people probably haven't heard the story of, um, you know, a visitor sitting in front of me. Yeah, yeah. Right after, right after service, this guy was just pretty upset. Freaking out. Yeah, and talked to me, and I was like, hey, how you doing? Just meeting, you know, meeting a new visitor. And he was like, yeah, my name's this, blah, blah, blah. And then went right into the Lord's Supper, pulled out his Bible. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Long story short, my wife's listening, and she's like, what's my husband going to say? <laughs> you know? And uh, came down to a point where I'm like, all right, man. I said, you know, well, I went into to our, like, position theologically, and I said, how many times do you guys take communion in your church? He said, once a month. And I look at my wife, and I kind of had a grin on my face, and I'm like, then why is this a problem for you? You know, and his wife kind of shook her head. It's like, okay, so here you have somebody who's complaining about our position on communion, yet they're taking it once a month in their church. I'm like, shouldn't you be more upset yeah. that your church is only doing it once a month when we do it every week and you have a problem? We don't know you from, from Adam. Yeah. Right? And interesting enough, a lot of people have decided not to join our church because of our position on communion. Which, yes. by the way, is the, is the like the majority historic position. Right. With this, the minority position is handing communion to anybody. Right. It's that's just, so, and that's more of a Zwinglian memorial view. Right. Which you don't, you're not taking it as serious maybe as you should be. And I'm not saying that Zwingli didn't have a high view of the Lord's table. He did, which is why he's one of the chief positions debated. So I don't want to. I don't want to like say we're going to make fun of these people for the position that they hold. And I don't want to. I don't want to have some arrogant. I think Noel wanted to share something too, real quick. Noel raised her hand first. Okay. Get my steps in. <laughs> well, if it's actually true that Jesus didn't come to save everybody, but only the elect, and we right. don't know, just having met somebody, if you're one of the elect or not, it's like you're hijacking something that's not made for you. It reminds me of people that want to wear a purple heart that haven't actually earned it. It's like this isn't just something that's you should have because it's pretty and you want one and you think, oh, that looks tasty. You know, it's not for you because it's not, you weren't the one the sacrifice was made for, so why would you try to grab onto it? Really important, like showing up to the wedding feast uninvited, like that example. Yeah. Yes, Brian, you wanted to share something? Why would we treat it different than baptism? Why would we treat it any different than baptism? Good question. I mean, and, and to be fair... Zwingli was not a, hey, whoever wants to show up and take, no problem. No, he wasn't. He still would have guarded the table. Yes. Though he just looked, though he considered the elements to be merely memorial, he yep. still would have guarded the table because yep. this is for believers and there are stern, strict, severe warnings in Scripture about this. Which is interesting. I think this is where, and I'm, I'm going to actually share the uh, Calvin's position before we get to Zwingli. Um, it wasn't even, if you know, in here. McGrath didn't even cover Calvin's position, which I thought is really interesting. Um, so I had to find another resource for it, just to kind of give you an idea of the debate between the two. But think about it. <clears throat> this is something that we wrestled with now. I, I would have to go as far as saying for years. We still work through it. We're still struggling with it, and that's okay. I think that there's something to be said about wanting to guard the table for everything that you guys all mentioned in here. Did you want to share something? Oh, okay. He got it. 
um, we want to honor it. We want to regard the Lord's table highly. Hold it in high regard to what Noel's point was. It's for believers. So someone joining you at the table, think about what you're communicating, okay? When someone comes and joins you at the table, what are they saying about themselves? They're born-again believers. I'm among you. It's a, think about this, guys. One, one thing I love about the way we've begun doing it, and it's kind of evolved over time. We originally started handing it out, and there would come to a point, like if we would see a, a person, we would like convene before we went out to give it, and we'd go hand it out, and we'd be like, no, no, no. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's cool, man. No, you can't. And it, man, it blew people out, right? Um, but there was a, uh, the reason we did that is because we felt responsible for handing the elements out. We had an obligation to protect the people as well and our body. It wasn't just the people sick and dying among you, the ones who are partaking it inappropriately. The ones who are partaking it inappropriately were causing many people to be sick and dying among the body. Just do a, do a deep, deep dive into a study in the warnings in, in 1 Corinthians 11. Do it. Ask yourself the hard question, why were people sick and dying among them? There was judgment being drank upon that body. And it, and it more had to do with the relationship of the love feast itself. There was a, it was a celebration, kind of what we do with our love feast at the end. Communion basically flowed directly into love feasts. So there was something that was happening during that. Yes? I think it's like you can compare it to um, like with baptism, like we don't believe in infant baptism because they can't, they can't yes. express their faith. They can't say, yes, I've come to believing faith in Jesus and I want to do this act as an obedience Which to is him. actually what we're covering next week, which right. is great. <laughs> right. yeah. So it's, it's, it's not only that, but it's a symbol of what's actually happened in your life. If you get, it's like, if, like when Jesus says, you know, many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and they'll be cast into the lake of fire because, well, they were just posers. posers. And so, yeah, so like if you're referring to what Jonathan's been preaching on, but if you're partaking of it without having actually repented, you don't have that actually applicable to your life. Yeah. So it's just dirtying of the table. So let's take it one step further. So this goes hand in hand, not only with baptism, because this is a public profession of the faith. That's why I love the way we do it now. It's beautiful. It's, it's a... It's a story of, hey, we're all joining one another. This is eventually something basically we're rehearsing, in a sense. Think about it. What we are rehearsing, ultimately what the Lord said in a promise, he says, I'm not going to eat or drink of this again until when? We're all together in the end, when everything has been completed redemptively. But we rehearse it. And it's beautiful. It's saying everybody's coming to the table and we're all part of the wedding party. We're all part of the wedding feast. That's, that's the beauty, beauty of communion. Okay? And we're saying that not just are we in communion with the Lord, what are we saying? We're in communion with one another. That we are in good terms with one another. What are, what are some of the reasons why someone would be barred from the table? This goes hand in hand with church discipline, doesn't it? Right? Why, do you, why, do people, why are people barred from the table? What are the reasons? Greg, yes. They're barred because... Well, going back to the to the sacraments, which we believe is baptism, the ordinances is only two, right? Baptism, Lord's Supper. Baptism would be the entrance into the covenant community. Yep. You know, identifying as you know a new you know a believer, identifying with the group of you know new covenant Christians. The 
Lord's Supper is the continuation, the sign of that continuation of that covenant. So when somebody's disciplined, you know, Matthew 18, go through all the steps, they're now excommunicated. You know, we bar them because we're saying, you know, as a church, you know, we don't identify you as one of us, at least at this point. Or we're concerned. Or we're concerned, yeah. Yeah, even our, even our you know, um, bylaws and, and many Baptist bylaws over the course of time would have the words of suspension. But even people can be suspended from taking the Lord's Supper because of heinous sin or, or, or un, uh, unbroken patterns of sin. Okay. Therefore, the, you know, the leaders That's one. are put in a position yeah, to be able to do that. So. so it's a church discipline issue. You're saying, I have broken communion. I have broken fellowship with the Lord and with the body of Christ. That's what you're saying. Why do we do this weekly? Well, you need to be example. What did Johnny say on his way out yesterday? Right before he left. Don't remember, bro. Examine yourself. Remember, <laughs> we, have, we observe the Lord's table tomorrow. Bro, that's like a stern warning from your brother. Hey, examine yourself. Remember, we observe the Lord's table tomorrow. So what, what should the Lord's table do? It should constantly cause you to acknowledge your communion with the Lord throughout your, throughout your week and with one another. So Greg brought up a good one. Unbroken pattern of unrepentant sin is one reason why you would be barred from the table, church discipline-wise. We acknowledge that in you, your brothers and sisters in Christ. I see you, bro. I got you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I got you too. Right? I, I have broken fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ, with the Lord. I need to examine myself. So what? I don't drink judgment upon myself. Two, what's another one? I'm causing division in the body. You're divisive. You actually won't receive correction from your brothers or sisters or even from the leadership of the church. You can give a rip. You're causing problems. And we're saying, uh, uh, no, no, no. You can't, take the t- you can't take partake of the table. One, because you're in sin and you're doing something that the Lord hates, causing division among the brethren. Hates it. It's among the things that he hates. So, if you're causing division among the brethren, you shouldn't be taking Stop it. Stop doing that. Yeah, and you're now under church discipline. You're under church discipline. And then the third reason would be, you're not a believer. You've never made a public proclamation of the faith. You don't understand or know the gospel, and you haven't been baptized. So, this is... I'll just say on that point, you know, where we differ from like Roman Catholics, right? Roman Catholics almost, almost, I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, like ex-cathedra, they're saying, you're not a Christian. Mm-hmm. Whereas our position is more so like, you know, your life, your conversation, like the Baptist would, would use that, that language, is, doesn't, doesn't uh, exhibit Christ, right? So we would say that you're not, you know, you're not patterning your life after Christ. It's possible you're not saved. You yeah. know, it's kind of like uh, the analogy of like a, like an embassy, right? So the church is like the embassy. We, we we you know somebody very well may be a Christian, be in sin, but the church God has ordained the church to put the stamp of approval. Okay, yeah, you are the you know the U.S. citizen, so to speak. Like if you're in Germany trying to get to the U.S. and you don't have a passport, and you're like, hey, dude, bro, you know I'm from California, man. You know I am. Okay, great. Where's, where's your passport? Right? Got to have the passport to get to get in. So the church, the church is very much likened to that. Whereas to differ from the Catholics, they're almost like, you're out. And coming back from excommunication, from what I've seen in Catholic churches, is almost impossible. 
Whereas, you know, in uh, 2 Corinthians 7, you see, the, you see the guy who, in 1 Corinthians 5, he was having sex with his mother-in-law, and, and it's implicit that in 2 Corinthians 7 that, um, you know, here he was, repentant. Like, bring him, Paul's saying, bring him back in. Like, restore this man, you know? So, just want to share that. Do you have a microphone? No, she's, I she's was going to say oh. divisiveness. You divisiveness. Yeah, yeah. So the divisiveness, why is the divisiveness a distinction from unrepentant sin? Well, it's someone who is not receiving correction from their brothers or sisters or from church leadership. It's someone who has been acknowledged maybe of unrepentant sin or whatnot, uh, which that's probably the only category I can think of it being in, but they're, they're being addressed, they're being approached, they're, they're causing division, right? They're backbiters, slanderers, gossips, and it's acknowledged, and they're in the body. They've professed Christ, and they're being addressed, and they're not, they're not repenting. They're not stopping. We would bar them from the table. Say, no, no, you're not welcome to take the table with us. This one's more of like a, a question, okay. sort of, and a, a previous thought. But um, in the event that you have like a one-on-one kind of conflict happening in the church, like someone did something and you're just upset at them and you're not forgiving them and you're not trying to resolve the conflict, wouldn't that also qualify as kind of a temporary barring from the table until you've resolved that conflict with your brother? Yes, so that goes with the communion side of things. That goes, if you have a problem with the brother or sister in Christ, that's the division part, the divisiveness issue, is that you need to go reconcile that with them first before coming to the table. And that goes with the communion piece. If there's a broken in, breaking in fellowship where your brother or sister has something against you and they're struggling and there's no reconciliation that occurred, the church leadership then at that point has the onus to come in and say, hey, look, like we need to, let's work through this together. Let's reconcile. So everything is reconciliation driven, um, right? It's a reconciliatory process that we're saying we are, we are reconciled with God and Christ we're in a right relationship with the Lord, and we're in a right relationship with one another prior to partaking of the table. That's why we should be examining our hearts throughout the week. So what about in the case of just this hypothetical, but it happens often enough, sure. where somebody has, you know, somebody's done something to upset another person, they don't realize it, but this other person's holding it against them. Is there concern for the person who's done the thing no. when they don't realize it yet? No, I like, it hasn't been brought to them. I see what you're saying. The person who has a clear conscience has no idea what's going on. They, they partake of the table. It's the person that is struggling. They need to go reconcile. They should be approaching the person saying, hey, look, like I'm really struggling maybe with something you said or did. I'm, I'm wrestling with this. I'm working through this. And, and you know, I, want to, I need to pursue reconciliation with you. Yeah. So No, I totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah, that there's a flip side, of, flip side of this to where some people... A lot of churches out there that people are like they won't even take communion because they think they might have offended somebody or just you know, right. it's a bunch of weird imbalances. Yeah, super imbalances with that. I mean, you know, the normative should be receiving the Lord's Supper. Yeah, right. So let me give you I an mean, example. We actually even in the law of God there there were yeah. there were you know sins, commission, omission, right? And and there was there were certain varying degrees in terms of your sacrifice, right? It's like you're saying if you don't know that you sinned against somebody, I mean, you're in good conscience. You have a you know, receiving the Lord's Supper. Yeah. And even in, and I would say too, even if you know you sinned against somebody and you didn't reconcile that necessarily, I mean, depending on the degree of what that is, I mean, we know we're married, right? I get my wife upset often, I think. Mm-hmm. Love my dear wife, but uh, she's got to deal with me, you know? 
I mean, so there's stuff like that to where I'm going to receive the supper, and, you know, there's no heart pattern or, un, you know, unrepentant sort of, uh, you know, nature to, to be in a position to not receive the supper. So the imbalance, too, on that point, the imbalance, too, is like, I just had an argument with my wife on the way to, to church this morning. I shouldn't, I shouldn't partake. No, th- listen, there, there's an abundance of grace and mercy, right? If you're harboring, like, division in your heart, and you hate your wife in your heart or your husband, well, you probably should pass on the table because <laughs> you got there's a real heart issue. But if there's a grievance, right, that you're frustrated with each other, like you know, my wife yells at me for going too fast on the freeway or something, you know, and I snap back at her. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. That didn't happen this morning, by the way. This is totally you know theoretical, hypothetical, but it has happened in the past. Uh, you know, you snap back and you know, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That shouldn't stop me from partaking of the table. I'm talking about more egregious sins. Yes, Clayton. I was just going to ask, um, God, the Father, doesn't have a physical body. Uh, God, the Spirit, doesn't have a physical body. Jesus ascended in a physical body. And so, God, as a Spirit, is everywhere. And so, God can be present, or is present, in that sense, at the very least, when you're taking communion. So I think what we need to understand is, is God present spiritually in a special way when you're taking communion? Because it's not in the physical substance, I would say, because that sounds very Roman Catholic. Um, But understanding what special way God is present during the the supper. Perfect segue. Yeah, because, and thank you for roping this back in, because I want to get through Calvin's and um, Zwingli's view, so we can kind of look at the spectrum. One is substantive, right? Substantive, substantive, yeah. Substantive, anyway. Uh, and then consubstantive, with, but not in the substance itself. And then you have Calvin's view, which is what we'll go look at right now. Okay, so Calvin viewed uh, it, it as both a sign and seal. So it was a sign and a seal. And we'll, go, we'll get through that here in a minute, right? <clears throat> so the Lord's Supper is far more than mere memorial service, it is a marvelous means of grace as well. So Calvin cites with Zwingli in denying the physical. It is not physically substantial. It's not the substance of, of Christ, right? Uh, in the Eucharist. But he differs from then making the Eucharist an act far more than just a confession of faith. And he lays a far greater stress than Zwingli on the meaning of its true participation. So with Luther, Calvin holds that Christ is truly present in the supper, and he really lays stress, especially on the mystic union of the believer with Christ, which is what I think you're getting at, right? There's this union with Christ that we have, and what we're saying is we're acknowledging that when we come partake. Okay, that's the sign itself is the elements. The seal is we are in a union with Christ. Right? We good? Okay. So in the supper, it both benefits Christ's death and his glory to the person it's touched. So there's a spiritual nourishment aspect to it too. There are benefits in coming and taking of the communion. There's a spiritual benefit to it. A means of grace. Have you guys heard that term before? So Christ does not descend on the supper to the believer. This is really cool. When I read this, I was like, oh, this is nice. He doesn't descend to the supper to the believer, but the latter ascends to him in heaven. We are seated with him in the heavenlies. 
we are acknowledging our position in Christ in the heavenlies. So it's not as though Christ comes to us into our service, right? We're not, you know, praying for the Holy Spirit to please come into our service, right? We're Christ doesn't come have some physical entrance into our service in the substance of, of Christ, His body Himself, right? But we acknowledge our ascension seated in Him in the heavenlies. That comes with the union of Christ. Does that make sense? So the central thought of Calvinistic conception of the Supper is this, that the communicant, through the operation of the Holy Spirit, comes in spiritual contact with the entire person of Christ, and that He is thus fed unto life eternal. Let me read that one more time. The central thought of the Calvinistic conception of the Supper is this, that the communicant, through the operation of the Holy Spirit, comes in spiritual contact with the entire person of Christ, and that He is thus fed unto life eternal. Every close student of Calvin's works will have to admit that this idea on the subject are somewhat involved and confusing. It's not really clear. Calvin wasn't actually very clear on it. Okay. Um, this, is not, uh, this is due, no doubt, to the mediating position he occupied between Luther and Zwingli. But his position as a whole is quite plain. One, all his followers agree in holding that Christ is only spiritually present in the supper. Two, that the participation in the benefits of the supper must therefore be spiritual, although it is real. And three, that only true communicants, us, the believers, by living faith can communicate therein, and that this participation in the atoning death of the Savior is sealed to us by the use of the ordained signs of the sacrament. And so let's look at our confession. If you guys have the confession, the Lord's Supper, which is chapter 30, so 30.1 says the Lord's Supper, uh, the Supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by Him in the same night He was betrayed. It is to be observed in His churches to the end of the age as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of Himself in His death. It is given for the confirmation of faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, and their further engagement in, all, in and to all the duties they owe to Him. So the supper is to be a bond and a pledge of their communication with Christ and each other. You guys see those, those points, right? So it's an acknowledgement of His death, all the benefits that you are and a partaker of those things, and our relationship with Him and one another. That's what we're professing every time we come to the table. So let's, uh, um, let's, do, let's do point two real quick. In this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to His Father, nor is any real sacrifice made at all for remission of sin of the living or the dead. It is only a memorial of the one offering of Christ made of himself on the, Christ, on the cross once and for all. Not to be confused with Zwingli's memorial. The point one would have gone further than Zwingli's memorial view. What he's saying is, unlike the Catholic Mass that continues to re-offer Christ as a continual sacrifice to the Father, this is, a, this is in remembrance of what Christ has done once and for all on the cross. It is also a spiritual offering of the highest possible praise to God for that sacrifice. Remember what uh, Paul says in Romans 12, that your living sacrifice is offering up praise and worship to, the, to God. You know, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. 
Thus, the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the Mass, as they call it, is utterly detestable and detracts from Christ's own sacrifice, which is the only propitiation for all the sins of the elect. So here, this document is specifically speaking against transubstantiation. So let's go, let's go on to point five. The outward elements of this ordinance, properly set apart for the use ordained by Christ, have such a relationship to Christ crucified that they are sometimes called, truly though figuratively, by the names of the things that they represent. That is, the body and the blood of Christ. What he's saying is, when we partake of these things, Jesus is saying, although figuratively, this is my body, which has been broken for you, partake. This is my blood, which I've given, right? The, the blood of the new covenant for you, partake. However, in substance and in nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine, as they were before. There is no sub substantial change, okay? So point six, the doctrine commonly called transubstantiation teaches that the substance of bread and wine is changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood by the consecration of a priest or in some other way. This doctrine is hostile not only to Scripture, but also in common sense and reason. It destroys the nature of the ordinance and has been and has been and is the cause of many kinds of superstitions and gross idolatries. So let me, uh, let me just, con I'll just conclude with that. Conti I encourage you to go through and read uh, the Confession on the Lord's Supper, yes, and the Communion of the Saints, by the way. They go hand in hand. A microphone? Just having a discussion with Roman Catholic bro at work um, to Je uh, Jesus' words in John 6 on unless he eats my flesh and drinks my blood, which he told is very gruesome imagery yeah. in the Greek. What is the What would be your better than mine response to that in addition to all the, it's the blood? It's, it's not just the bread, obviously. Yeah, I think what Jesus, well, think about this. Not only would that have been hard for a Jew to hear, but Jesus was directly associating himself with the Passover. Um, this is what you will have to partake. I believe what, what, uh, what blew them out was the fact that Jesus was associating himself with that. Not the necessary, like the grotesque fact of you have to eat me, drink my blood. And that, that's actually, I don't think, what blew them out. I think what blew them out was, that, was his association, um, the messianic association that why, why would the Messiah have to give himself up? Well, let, let's just look at John real quick, because I, I, have, I have studied that. Um, let me just open that up. That is in John, right. So Jesus, uh, the, the chapter opening, I mean, just look at uh, verse 22 for context. Jesus calls himself the bread of life, right? Um, he calls himself the bread of life. Uh, this is right when he did the miracle where he feeds the 5,000. He identifies himself as this bread, basically, that would be disseminated among the people very, in a very similar way that he'd identified himself with the Passover, Right? He, what does he say? He says, uh, uh, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He's speaking of the manna, right? But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then look what he says here. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So he's associating himself not just with the manna, 
in the wilderness. I mean, look at all these associations. He's basically saying, think about the, the visual representation there. He feeds the 5,000. He divides for them, right, the loaves from one loaf or two. Or what was it? I forgot. It was a couple loaves. Anyway, from a few loaves. I forgot. The point is that he is able to create more from one thing, right? And expand it. And he, he describes himself as, this is the bread that nourishes you. I am this bread. I'm just like this bread. I'm the bread, bread of life. And then he re- direct references the bread from uh, the hev- heaven. Sorry, that's, that's really distracting. It's awesome. Uh, then he associates himself with the provision that God had given Israel to keep them alive. Manna from heaven. And then he says, look what he says. He says, for, um, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. The bread is a person now? The manna is a person? Jesus says, yes, it's me. I'm the one that gives you life. And they say, hey, give us this bread always. <laughs> like we, you know, he fed, not only did he feed them all, he shows and demonstrates through a miracle trying to associate himself symbolically of the bread that nourishes you. Uh, in the same way, think about what he said to uh, the woman at the well. Right, The woman at the well, you know, he's speaking, hey, what, you know, you're going to have to keep drawing from this well. And, and this is like, I think that's John 4. Yeah, it's John 4. Think about what he's associating himself with. You're going to keep drawing from this well, and this well you're going to continually be thirsty. But the water that I give to you, is the water that wells up to ever, everlasting life. And what does she say? Give me this water. It's the same response. Give me this bread. What is he saying about himself? He's identifying himself with certain Old Testament references to say, I am the true bread. I am the true water. I'm, come to me, all you who thirst and drink, so you would never thirst again. Is Jesus a huge cup of water that never ends? Do you see what I'm saying? Like It's, it's ridiculous to think of it that way to take it so literalistically in the sense we're not taking it literally according to the genre being written here. We're taking it literally according to word for word literal meaning. And that's not what Jesus meant. Yes. So this is a different question. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, so he says it right here. Go ahead. Based on Zwingli and, and Calvin and uh, Luther, all three of them being paedo-baptist. Yeah. But some of their description of, of the mode of, of communion, did they make a distinction between like true believers who are allowed to take communion versus covenant children who are baptized as children? Uh, uh, like, did they have a distinction there? Or basically, yes. if you were baptized as a child, whether you were a true believer or not, were you able to take communion? Yes. Matter of fact, let's, let's, let's touch that next week. Because we're actually going to talk about infant baptism and the debates with infant baptism next week. But he's speaking of pedo communion, right? Who these were all pedo Baptists. Uh, if they're being consistent, which this is what we would have to argue even with our Presbyterian brothers and our Lutheran brothers. Hey, if you're being consistent, you need to offer your children. If you're baptizing them, you need to offer them communion because they're part of the new covenant, right? Some do, not all. Good goal. Yeah. Okay. Then we should have examples of people just dropping dead. We might. Well, I, I mean, don't it would Lutheran be it would be right? in the church setting, right? I mean, we don't see that. So I don't have a problem. It's with not Calvin. dropping dead. It's sick and dying among you. 
Well, and it doesn't necessarily have to mean right there at the... No, of course the, not. Yeah. But, you know, when you're talking about Calvin and his view, you know, the Catholics hyper-spiritualize everything about it. Infant baptism and the Lord's Supper. He leans really heavily towards that. Listen, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. We can't twist that to the point where it's like two chapters long. It's a joyous occasion to come before the table. If an unbeliever eats the bread and the wine, what, they already have damnation upon them. Correct? They're judged already. So my point is, is that why do we turn this into such a deep, deep thing when Jesus Himself said, do this in remembrance of Me and what I did. Right? I mean, I really feel like we take it and we go to an extreme when at the end of the day, if somebody is coming to the table and they're sinning on the way in their mind, how do we determine whether a sin is worthy of still taking the Lord's Supper? That's my question. Because we're all saved by grace and it says very clearly that if we sin, grace abounds. Paul was very clear on that. Why don't we apply that to the table? If you're an unbeliever, and you're coming forward and you're taking the Lord's Supper, are you not acknowledging the death, burial, and resurrection of the broken body of Christ? No. As not an unbeliever? Always. Publicly. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it depends, right? I, mean, I don't know their hearts. Obviously, right. But, but, right. Yeah. but my point is, is that is the table, do we make it so that people are scared to take it? Because that's what this teaching does. Okay. Well, I mean, to be honest, you should be. Because Paul said you should be. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul said, I mean, bro, Paul says, examine yourself and don't drink judgment upon yourself. So I'm saying that there's okay. a reason. It's, I, I understand you're saying, why can't we just keep it this simple? Why are we making it more than what it is? You take a, a Zwinglian position, but that's, a lot, that's actually how a lot of theology works. When you're reading it, it's not just, oh, it's this simple. It's really not. There's a lot more to it. it okay, why did Paul feel the need to expand it the way that he did? So that we'd have to drop back and go, wait a second, what is Paul actually saying about what's happening here in the Lord's Supper? And then you have to ask yourself about the spiritual significance. Oh. That's just the reality. We only have a few more minutes, guys. And just, I have to get I'm gonna through end, I'm gonna the Zwingli in position. Huh? So, real quickly. Yeah. In Corinthians, when Paul was rebuking the, the church at Corinth, yeah. it was because they were coming and drinking their fill of the wine and the bread and getting drunk and having a party. And Well, no. It was also because they were placing themselves in higher esteem than others. Um, yeah, there's more to it. And, the, and it was also a self-examination prior to partaking of those things. So there's more to it, for sure. I understand. But yeah. I just, you know, we, we, always, we talk about the Lord's Supper so much when it is the joy of our salvation and what it is and what it represents. Sure. And so we can get so into it that it becomes this thing where people literally are worried about taking the Lord's Supper Mm -hmm. And maybe it's just something that, I mean, we, we can't say that this sin is worse than the other sin when, in a sense, I mean, you have gross sin. Yes, you can. You can say that murder is definitely worse than lying. You okay, sure well, can. Jesus said it, that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. We wouldn't let an adulterer come to the table. Totally. So, again. And then someone has, and someone's struggling, right? Yeah. And they've acknowledged so, that. There's a difference. I, I think we're starting to get in, and, and I'm losing time here really quick but I think it's an important conversation to have and I think what you're saying is valid and I think that you probably hold more of a Zwinglian view 
uh, than a Calvinistic view. And I think, let's, let's keep working through this, but I do want to make sure I finish answering his question. If you go on, if you go on here, um, look what it says in verse 35. He says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Right? In that context, they, they will not thirst. Uh, and then he goes on to say, you know, talking about how he is the bread that came from heaven. Verse 42. This is Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? What was the issue? The issue wasn't that he was calling himself the bread or water, a sweet drink of water. It was that he was acknowledging that he was sent from the Father. And he goes on through the text, right? Look what he says. I mean, just continue to go through the context here. Talking about who he is being sent by the Father. And then he goes in to say, he goes he even makes a more radical statement by saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Right? Which is, you have no life in you unless you do. Uh, verse 53. Unless you do this, eat my flesh and drink the Son of Man and drink His blood, you will have no life in you. What is he saying? He's associating himself to, look at this miracle, all that we're fed, I am this provision, I am the heavenly provision, I'm to be associated with the man I've sent from heaven to nourish you and, and, and uh, give you life. I'm, I'm the big drink of water, the woman at the well, a water where you'll never thirst again. Come to me for those of you who thirst, you'll never thirst again. And you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yes. Real quick, please. I have one minute. Real quick, just kind of address what Dr. Willie was sharing. Okay. Um, uh, there's definitely a theology behind the Lord's Supper. It's not, it's not as though it just appeared in the New Testament. Right? It, yeah. is, it, is the, it is the antitype of the type and shadows of the Passover, right? So there's a lot involved in it. So it's not as simple as, you know, hey, this is it. Come and take. Everything's, everything's just, you know, hunky dory. A lot goes behind that. There's um, a huge theology that under. There's a huge, a, a massive below. theological undergirding yeah. for the reason why we, you know, do what we do, and 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 the reason why the Lord ordained it as a, as a sacrament. Um, ne- next, I'd say as far as like levels of sin, um, you know, committing adultery in the heart is far more or less of a sin to actually going and doing it. Committing hatred in your heart is where the seed of murder starts is a lot less of a sin than actually sticking a knife in somebody shooting killing somebody even in the even in the sacrifices and in the in the old covenant there were there was clearly levels of sin in terms of what sort of sacrifice and what needed to be done as a result of you know those, yeah. those sins so i mean that's that's clear and you know a lot of atheists bag on christians that will make those sorts of statements saying a Christian thinks that, you know, hatred in the heart is equal to actually murdering somebody. You know, yeah. that, that's quite common of a, of a position that atheists will yeah. talk a lot of smack about. Okay, I, I have to get through this. Anyway, sorry. But bro. we can talk about it after. No, I think it's important. That's why we, it's actually why I brought it up today. Is it so you could better understand our position and why we wrestled with it and why we worked through it. So just working through this real quick. Uh, here's memorialism, which is a Zwinglian view. Um, he following, in following Cornelius Hohen, uh, who was influenced by humanist Wessel Gansfort's work on the sacrament of the Eucharist, Swingley defended the idea that Christ's body and blood is not identical with the element, but signifies such. Okay? The word is 
here must be taken in metaphorical and non-literal sense, which we'd mostly agree, right? The Old Testament prophets may indeed have foretold that Christ was, has become the flesh, um, but, this, but this was to happen once and only once. At no point did the prophets foretell or the apostles preach that Christ would, so to speak, become bread, right? And that is a um, impanatus, I think is how you pronounce that, which is the inclusion of the body of Christ in the Eucharistic bread and a hypostatic union without change in either substance. So every day through the actions of any priest offering up the sacrifice of the Mass. Hohen influenced Zwingli's thinking in two major ways. First, the idea of the Eucharist being like a ring given by a groom to his bride to reassure her of his love. It is a pledge. It's an idea that resonates throughout Zwingli's writing on the subject, which is a lot what you're saying, um, William. Second, the, uh, a commemoration of Christ in his absence, noting that Christ's phrase, this is my body, is immediately followed by the words, do this in remembrance of me. Hohen argues that the second set of words clearly points to a commemoration of a person who is absent, at least physically absent, which is what you're saying. Okay? Zwingli argued that Scripture employed many figures of speech, and thus the word is, uh, in, in Christ this is, my body and blood, might at one point mean is absolutely identical with, and at another point mean represents or signifies. So uh, I won't go on with that last quote, but you can read that yourself. If you'd like to grab my book, you can have it. But with that said, that's, those are the primary positions. Uh, in terms of debating the subject matter, and why we hold the position that we hold to. I would love to have a conversation with you guys about that. I think it's really important. And we're open. We're not like necessarily completely shut down. No, this is the way we do it. But we hold a position and have worked through this and wrestled with this for a reason. You know, it's, uh, and it's, it's tough. It's, it's a hard issue. And I, so it's not that we're dismissing what you're saying. I think you're making valid points. I think you are. So with that said, uh, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I, I so thank you for this time. I do thank you for the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper that we can uh, acknowledge this weekly together uh, of our relationship with you and with one another and that uh, we should examine ourselves prior to partaking to see if we are in the faith. And Lord, that this should be an issue that we take very seriously and in the same sense, with great joy. With great joy, we should come to the table every week. And so I pray... This is a blessing to my brothers and sisters, and I pray that you would bless the rest of our day of worship together. In Jesus' name, amen.